If you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. We are looking again at this central doctrine of the atonement. And particularly this morning, how the triune God saves us. One thing that is very important uh, in a general rule for how to read and understand Scripture is this, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. There are no verses of the Bible that are pitted against each other. So whenever we come to any portion in Scripture, we always want to think, how does the whole Bible work together to interpret this? The reason why I say that is because when we read the Bible, we realize that we believe in a triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is that God who saves us. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now go to verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have planned from all eternity, eternity past that this morning, even with these snowy conditions, that we would hear this text. Son, you are the one who is uh, the theme of this text and the salvation that you have purchased so that we could be here. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who applies that very same salvation, and you do so through the means of grace in our union with Christ. And so we are asking that you would once again do your work that only you can do. Would you guide us, and would you open up our minds to behold your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If we have sinned against God and therefore stand under his wrath, how can things be made right between us and God? How can payment be made for us to be ransomed from God's wrath, sin, and death. And for this payment to be made, the question then becomes this. Did God have to become man? Could there have been any other way for God to save us? Did God the Son have to take on flesh 
to save us. Some Christians have thought that uh, throughout the years of 2,000 years of the church, some Christians have thought that there could have been a different way, but God just wanted to do it that way. But we need to remember what the 4th century pastor Gregory of Nazianzus, he says this, nothing which God does is without purpose. This question about did God have to become man, this was the question that a guy named Anselm sought to answer. Anselm is a pastor in the 11th and 12th century, and he was addressing this question, why did God have to become man? Could it have been in any other way? And here's what Anselm says, here's his argument. Sin creates a problem between us and God, and so without some payment, that problem will never be resolved. But humanity alone is the one who owes payment. Humanity alone is the one who is in debt, and therefore only humanity may pay the debt. But here's the problem. We can't. We, in and of ourselves, by our own ability, we do not have the ability or even the desire to make that payment. So how is this problem between us and God going to be solved? Sometimes people today will say, well, can't God just forgive sins and just brush them under the rug and then it's fine? Well, no. The only way God can forgive sins is if atonement has been made. It's funny, in Anselm's book, uh, the book that is called Why the God-Man, he is having a hypothetical conversation with a guy named Bozo. How about that? And Bozo, as you can kind of understand by the name, Bozo is struggling to know why the cross had to happen. Here's what Anselm says. One of the reasons why you struggle to believe why the cross had to happen, Anselm says, you have not yet considered the greatness of the weight of your sin. That is one thing we must always remember, is that sin is so great that only God can solve the problem. Anselm goes on to say this, if only God can make this payment and only man ought to make the payment, then it is utmost necessity that God-man does it. That the God-man, Jesus Christ, does it. Amen? That's the only way. This is why Jesus must be perfect. He must be God and man in order to atone for sins. This is why the Son of God took on flesh to come to the cross and take the wrath of God as a payment. And this one payment would be for all time for all the people who would be saved. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, If the Son took on flesh to go to the cross and to take the wrath of God 
And if that salvation is going to somehow be given to us, then it implies that God must be triune in order to save us. The Father plans our salvation. The Son purchases our salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. And that is what I want to look at this morning so that we can understand the cross. Because the gospel of grace is this. The gospel of grace is that our triune God did what we could never have done. Amen? And the more we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, and the more we understand the doctrine of what happens, of how that triune God saves us, the greater our assurance will be, and the greater will our love for that God be. So first... Excuse me, let us look at the fact that God is three. Now, technically, this is not, uh, theologically speaking, this is not the right starting point. It is more proper to start with God being one. But the reason why I want to start with three in this sermon is because typically when someone becomes a Christian, they're reading the Gospels and they begin to see that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there is somehow that God is three. So that's why I want to start there first. We see in Scripture that the Father is God. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. It's very clear in the context of all four Gospels that as Jesus talks about the Father, he is speaking about him as the one true God. We see this in Luke chapter 11, even as we prayed earlier uh, this morning, we said, Father, hallowed be your name. We are addressing the Father as God because he is. But when we keep reading in scripture, we see that the Son is also God. The Son meaning Jesus Christ who took on flesh. Luke 1 says this, and behold, talking to the angel talking to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb uh, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And then it goes on to say this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, talking about Jesus, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus <laughs> is named Jesus uh, because his name is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, Scripture is very clear by saying Jesus is God. Jesus himself says in John ten fifteen, I am the Father who is God, I and the Father are one. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Listen to this. This is a very important text. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. But then Paul keeps going. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
very clearly, we see in Scripture the Father is God and the Son is God. But we also see that the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, he is teaching his disciples uh, these last words he wants them to hear. And it's very interesting that of all the doctrines he really gets into, he gets into the doctrine of the Trinity. Let us never think, because Jesus certainly did not, let us never think that the doctrine of the Trinity is somehow impractical or unimportant. Jesus clearly saw it as the most important doctrine because it was the one he, he talked about most in his last hours with his disciples. And so he says in John 15, 26, he says, But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, this is what J.R. was praying earlier, But when the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus is very clearly saying the Holy Spirit is God. Paul in Galatians 4, 6 says, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if the Son is God, and this is the Spirit of the Son, therefore the Holy Spirit is God. Paul again, <clears throat> this will be actually the benediction I will give to you later in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, which is talking about the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We believe that God is three. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At the same time, we do not believe in three different gods. We believe that God is one. God is one in three, and he is three in one. Now, at this point, let me do this, because some of you are sitting here, and you're maybe thinking this. How in the world is this going to change my week the rest of the week? First off, let me remind all of us, what is the most important thing about Christianity and about the church? It is not about what are we to do. It is about what God has done. Amen? It is about adoring and worshiping and finding all of our satisfaction in that God. Eventually, the mission of the church will come to an end. But worship and worship of the triune God will last into eternity. And so the most important thing is that your heart is stoked with an awe and a fear of who he is to say, that is my God. And from that, over, overflowing out of that, comes everything practical. So our first duty is to behold God. He is three, he is also one. As you would keep reading <clears throat> your Bible, you would come across a text such as Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, that says this. And this was one of the earliest creeds in all of the world. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this creed is called the Shema. In other words, it is very clear that we do not believe that there are more gods than one. That's why God gave the first commandment saying, you shall not have any other gods before me. 
because there aren't. We are only to worship him because he is the only one who is God. So we see that God is also one. Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Here's what he says. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. God is very clearly one. Now, here is what Scripture does not mean when it talks about oneness. This one God does not wear three different masks. He puts on one mask at one time, and then when he wants to do something else, he puts on another mask. And then when he wants to do something else, he puts on another mask. That is not what we believe. So the example that maybe sometimes has been used throughout church history, the example that one single man can simultaneously be a father, a son, and a brother, that is not what we believe about the Trinity. We also do not believe that God is the combination of the three persons. It's not like a three-leaf clover where the Father is a third of God, and the Son is another third of God, and the Holy Spirit is a third of God. We do not believe that. We also, and this is very important, we also do not believe this. We do not believe that God is a community. We do not believe that God is a cooperative society of love. We do not believe that God is the interpersonal love relationships between the persons. And matter of fact, <clears throat> it is often uh, not always the most helpful to think about the dance as an analogy. Rather, here is what we mean, and here is what Christians have always meant whenever we say that God is one. When we say that God is one, we mean that he has one essence. Now, let me tell you what does that word mean. Essence literally is this. When we say, what is God, like in our uh, shorter catechism, question number four, what is God? And then it goes on to describe him. We're talking about the whatness of him. That is his essence. So when we say, when we talk about what is God, we're saying this is his essence. Here's what one author, Matthew Barrett, says. God's essence is not one thing, and then his attributes a whole other thing. Rather, his attributes and his essence are one and the same thing. God is one essence, three persons. That's very, very important. Because what we do not mean when we say God is love, here's what we do not mean. It is actually, as it were, improper to say God has love. God does not have love. He is love. God does not have power or have wisdom or have holiness. He is that. All we are doing and all Scripture is doing, whenever it says 1 John 4, 8, God is love, or Isaiah 6 or Revelation 4, when it says God is holy, 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 
we are just describing him. We're not saying that these attributes, when you get the combination of them, somehow make up who he is. Let me give you an example. If any of you have been to Atlanta and there's the uh, Coca-Cola factory, there's, I, I don't know if it's still there, but at least years ago, they had this machine where you could kind of, I think it was either three or four different things, and there was like different levels, and you would try to figure out what's the right combination of sugar and whatever else is in there, just sugar and sugar and sugar, whatever, um, of what makes up Coca-Cola. <laughs> and if you get the right combination, it turns green, and it's like, you did it. That is not what we believe about God, that God is just the right combination of these attributes. God is not a little bit of love here and a little bit of holiness here. Whenever we say God is love, whenever we say God is holy, we are just describing his essence. It's just who he is. Knox is kind of in this phase, and maybe some other kids are too. Knox is in this phase where <clears throat> he's asking a lot about, Dad, what's in this? Dad, what's in that? And the other day, I think he asked me about, like, Dad, what's in this chair? And I was like, cushion. I don't know. He asked, I forget what it was. Maybe it was, like, in the wall. What's in this wall? I don't know. Uh, go ask Atticus. He knows. Um, he's, he's, all, he's asking a lot of the questions, what is this? What's in this? When we say, what is God, we're talking about his essence. And when we talk about his essence, now just keep hanging on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you how this all comes together. It's very important to know the doctrine of the Trinity so that we can understand the cross. This essence is simple. Now, I'm not talking about this. It's simple to understand. I am not talking about that. Whenever finite beings are thinking about their God, we must always remember that we are finite and he is infinite. God is not someone to figure out. The Bible is not something to master. It masters you. God is not someone to figure out and someone to manipulate and someone to control for your own either social, personal, or political agenda. God is someone who you, you bow down to. Amen? And this God is not made up of parts. He's not like a complex machine where everything works together. He is pure. He is simple. This is what Deuteronomy 6.4 is getting at when it says God is one. God does not look to anyone or anything else to give him existence. He needs no one. Nothing fuels up his tank. Nothing gives him energy. He is who he is. That is what God was telling Moses in Exodus 3 when he's speaking out of the burning bush, when he said, I am who I am. And however we describe God, we're just describing his simple, undivided essence. Now, <clears throat> Just to be clear, whenever we say that God is holy or God is wise, God is powerful, we're not saying that he has these things or that he's the combination of these things. We're saying he is who he is. We're just describing him. I'm going to show you how this is very important to understand the cross. If God is not made up of parts 
And if he is one simple, undivided essence, then what does that mean for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not three gods, and they are not each one-third of who God is. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And those three exist in one God. The three are one, and the one is three. It is not as if the Father has one essence, and then the Son has another essence. This is incredibly important. Because when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he did not give anything lesser than who he is. Amen? Let me say that again. This is hugely important for your assurance. When God the Father, who is God, when he says he gave his only son, he did not give you the JV B-team version of God. God gave you himself. Amen? Now, how about that whenever you think about how sinful am I? You need to look at who Jesus Christ is and realize he is more than enough for all of our sins. Now, the only distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is this. That the Father is the Father, he is not the Son and he is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is the Son, he is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, he is not the Father or the Son. Each person is the divine essence. You tracking with me? We believe in one God and three persons. And those three persons subsist in this one God. Now, watch what happens here. All three persons are uncreated. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. Because they have the same divided, I mean, excuse me, whew, that was about to be heresy and blasphemy. They have the same divine, simple, undivided essence. This is why it's important, because we believe God does not change. That means that wherever you look in Scripture, the God that you see is the God you get. Amen? This is why, as I was telling the children earlier, this is why we can say that we believe in one God, and we can also tell people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. This triune God... This is where it meets the cross. If he is one God, then the Father is not doing one thing and the Son doing another thing and the Holy Spirit doing another thing. Because if it is one God, it means there is one will. The one God acts in all things from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> At creation, we know from Scripture that the Father is the one who creates through the Son by the Holy Spirit. We see this also at Jesus' baptism. 
While Jesus is being baptized, there is a voice from heaven that is the voice of the Father. While something like a dove descends upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God acting in all things. One guy, theologian named John of Damascus, says this, For there is one essence, one goodness, one power, one will, one energy, one authority, one and the same, not three similar to each other, but one and the same movement of all three persons. This is why we call it the Trinity. Tri means what? Three. Tri, unity. Unity meaning one. In the word Trinity, we're talking about the three in one and the one in three. Now, <clears throat> this is why it's very important because when we come to the text in verse 14, where it says that one has died for all and therefore all have died, we come back to the question, who did Jesus die for? How does our triune God save us? Here is what we know from Scripture. That there is something called a covenant of redemption. This is where we come to understand doctrines such as predestination, election. Where God, before time began, he chose out of pure mercy and grace, no one forced him. He didn't look through the tunnel of time to see who would respond to him or who would cooperate with him. It is pure and utter grace. And the Father chose some for salvation, all of grace. And he chose others to be left in their sin and damnation. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen to this. Even as he, the Father, even as he chose us. Romans 9, 11 through 13 says, Even though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, it's talking about the Father, not because of works uh, done, but because of just him who calls. This is why she was told, the older, talking about Esau, will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then in verse 18 of chapter 9 of Romans. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's very clear in Scripture that the Father plans salvation, and he plans it by predestination and election. And it is all of grace. What about the Holy Spirit? I know we're jumping across the second person, but I'm going to show you how it gets to Christ. The Holy Spirit, what does he do? He applies that salvation. John 3 is very clear where Jesus says the only way you can be saved is if you are born again by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3 says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but just according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, the Father plans our salvation and the Holy Spirit applies that same salvation to the people whom the Father has chosen. And it is all by grace. Nobody earns it. Nobody cooperates with it. God makes it happen. Amen? That's really important. Because when you understand that, it properly humbles you. And it makes you love God and it actually makes you love others. And it makes you adore Him. Romans 8 verse 9 you, however, are not in the flesh, so knowing that there, is, there are people who are still in the flesh. You, dear Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there is a distinction. And it is not, once again, because of anything that you and I could do to earn it. It's only by grace. Now, here is the question. I know we've gone for some time and you're wondering, how in the world is this all going to come together? Here we go. We believe in one God, Amen. But we also believe God is three. Amen? <clears throat> if the Father chooses some and does not choose others, and if the Holy Spirit applies the salvation to some and not to others, then why would the Son do something different? When the Son goes to the cross, who does he die for? He dies for. For the elect and the elect only. He does not make salvation possible. He accomplishes it. And yes, it is a distinction. And that is incredibly humbling. But the Bible, whenever it talks about this doctrine, it is always saying that because salvation was accomplished, here's how you don't respond. You don't respond by saying, well, this person's elect and this person's definitely not elect. Just hang around longer and you will think that the people you thought would never be elect end up being the people who are elect. Because that's what God loves to do. But whenever the Bible speaks about this doctrine, it is speaking about it so that you might know for sure that your salvation is not possible. It's not up in the air. You don't add to it. It is accomplished. Amen? This is what verse 21 means. For our sake... He, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin, even though the Son, he knew no sin. So that in him, talking about the Son, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. My friends, something really happened on that cross. The Son of God took on flesh, and he lived the life that his people should have lived but didn't. And he went to the cross to suffer the death and the wrath of God so that he, remember Anselm, how are God and man going to be reconciled? Payment must be made. And what does he do? We see this very clearly in verse 14. He makes the payment, and so therefore all the elect, the payment has been made for them. And if the payment has been made, then heaven is for sure. It's not a possibility. My friends, this is an amazing truth about who this God is. <clears throat> How could Jesus make the payment for all individuals who have ever lived on this earth and yet still a multitude of them still go to hell? It can't happen because God would not be just. 
and somehow the Son would be doing something that the Father and the Spirit did not will. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross as a substitute for the elect who are chosen only by grace. So when it says in verse 14 that one has died for all and therefore all have died, who are the all? The all, based on the Trinity and based on the exegesis of this text. If, I'm sorry to sound smart, but the all is the elect. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, made it absolutely sure that all of his people would be saved. Amen? That means this. That even when someone is on their deathbed, that we can have hope that even in those last few minutes, we can preach the gospel of free grace and we can say this, you still can believe in Jesus right now and be saved, even though your whole life has been in ruins. And there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it because Jesus alone is enough. Amen? I think that can give parents a lot of hope because you might think there's no way for your child, there's no way they're going to believe. They're so hard-hearted. Or maybe children, you think about that for your parents. But God, because of the cross, God is undefeated in getting and saving all of his people. Because he did not make salvation possible, he secured it. So this is why Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why simultaneously we can look at anyone and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No questions asked. And we have confidence that if God has chosen them, which we do not know, but if God has chosen them, he's going to get them. Amen? This is why, dear believer, what you don't do is this. You don't say, I don't know if God has chosen me or not. You don't do that. You look at the word and you say, what does the word say? Because the word is telling me who I am. Who did Jesus die for? died for me. And the Bible is giving you all the license, and not just the license, but the mandate of saying, believe that Jesus died for you. And no matter how little of faith is there, the only reason why that faith is there is because God graciously gave it to you. Stop looking at how well you're doing in life. Stop comparing and contrasting yourself with other people. You look at Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can save you from your sins. Amen? And he's done it. He has done it. The story told of a man who <clears throat> came eagerly but really late to a revival meeting. And he found the workmen tearing down the tent where they were having the meetings and so he was frantic about missing the evangelist who was long gone by now and so he decided to ask one of the workers what could he do to be saved 
the workman who was a Christian said this, you can't do anything, it's too late. Horrified, the man said, what do you mean? How can it be too late to be saved? The workman responded very wisely and biblically faithful with this. That work of salvation has already been accomplished. There is nothing you need to do but just believe. My friends, 2,000 years ago, in real time and in real history, the Son of God took on flesh because the Father sent him. And when he went to the cross, he died for all the people who would forever be saved. And the Holy Spirit now, in this time, applies that salvation to you and me. And it is all by grace. And all you need to do is just believe. That is the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would only grow our understanding of who you are because it is worth it to simply know who you are. Holy Spirit, I hope we all feel stretched about how big, infinite our God is because that is exactly who you are. And yet, Lord Jesus, we, we can know for sure that if we simply come to you with all of our sin, that you will save us. Would you do this salvation in our hearts this morning? And even this week as we meet with other people, would you save them through the spreading of the gospel? Lord Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen.